This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. You're listening to Red Leg Nation Radio, the official podcast of RedLegNation.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of the Red Leg Nation Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Dotson, RedLegNation.com. Thanks for joining us again today. I've uh, got a fun program for you, I think, lined up today. Our buddy, uh, Joel Luckup, he's uh, known as Slide over at uh, everyone's favorite Reds blog, RedReporter.com. Um, uh, more uh, interestingly than that, he's uh, one of the co-authors of a very, very interesting new book. And this has been sort of a fantastic time for Reds books uh, in the last few months. We'll talk about that a little bit, but... I want to welcome Joel to the podcast side. How are you doing today, Joel? Good. Thanks for having me on, Chad. I oh, appreciate you coming on. We've been trying to actually get this planned for a while, and I uh, I, have, I keep failing to follow up on it. We're glad to get you in here, and it's a good reason to do it. Let's talk about this book, The Wire to Wire Reds, uh, Sweet Lou, Nasty Boys, and the Wild Run to a World Championship. Uh, this is about, what, the 1998 Reds? 1990 Reds. Oh, 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, that's the, 19, the 1998 Reds were just short of the Wire to Wire Championship. Just missed it. That's the uh, next book, by the way. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to let the cat out of the bag. I'm sorry about that. Well, it's going to be just like a little kid's book. It'll only be like three or four pages. Yeah, maybe a co- maybe a coloring book. That'll work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you wrote this book with John Arardi, who's written several, uh, a number of great uh, Reds books. Um, tell us how sort of the uh, you know the concept uh, arose and, and how you you all started this project. Um, well, you know, some of you may know that uh, you know John and I have collaborated together previously on articles that he's published in the Inquirer, um, and that's actually been going on for a couple of years, along with Justin, uh, J-N-A-Z, or however you want to pronounce it, um, and uh, Greg Gages, uh, who's been around on the blogs a little. Um, we've All three of us have kind of helped John at various points whenever he wanted to do something sabermetrically slanted uh, in the Inquirer, which... Um, you know, has been very well received and worked out great for us and, and for him as well. So uh, the relationship kind of developed through that. And then uh, last summer, I was at a book signing with him. He was, or he was, he was doing a book signing for his book Crosley Field that he wrote with Greg Rhodes. And I just went over and was talking to him, and I was like, well, what are you going to work on next? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, the, nobody's ever done a book about the 1990 team. And he said, yeah, you're right, nobody has. And that was kind of that, and I kind of took that as him being, yeah, you know, maybe. So, you know, about August, um, I'm feeling really burnt out in my job and uh, trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And my wife says to me, you know, well, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, I don't know if I could do that. And then I started thinking about it, and the the idea was still planted in my head of, you know, there wasn't a book about the 1990 team. And, you know, growing up at that time, um, it was really, you know, that was my team. I, I say in the book, you know, the Big Red Machine is kind of a tall tale uh, that I, that you know, I've only heard about. I wasn't alive uh, when the Big Red Machine was in their prime. So, you know, the 1990 team was kind of my championship team. 
So, you know, I thought about it for a while and then um, eventually ended up talking to John and told him that, you know, hey, I'm thinking about quitting my job and writing a book about the 1990 Reds. What do you think? And he said, well, you know, I think it'd be good because there hasn't been a book about this team. Of course, the funny thing with John is you can tell him the same idea uh, a month later and he'll act like he's never heard the idea before. Um, the flip side of that is he may very well tell you the same idea and act as if he came up with it himself. He's very good at taking your ideas and making them his own. Uh, and I say that in the most loving way possible. Certainly. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, he said, yeah, I think you should go for it. I think it'd be a good book to do. Nobody's done one before. Uh, a few weeks later, he emailed me and said, you know what? I, I really like the idea about a, 19, a book about the 1990 team, especially with next year being the 20th anniversary. And I think, um, you know, I, I'd love to be able to do one. And I, you know, I think it'd be great if we worked on one together. And, you know, one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, I actually had somebody who knew what they were doing working on the book with me, which was ended up being a huge help. Yeah, outstanding. And uh, obviously, John has been a part of several Fantastic Reds projects, and, and this was sort of a natural, as you said, because of the 20-year anniversary. Now, for some context, uh, and, and you talk about this some in the book, and you just mentioned it a moment ago, and I wanted to sort of go back to it. We're kind of the same way. I'm a, a couple years older than you, but... Uh, we were too young to remember uh, the Big Red Machine, really. We grew up sort of surrounded by uh, the memories of the Big Red Machine uh, from everyone around us. But really, this 1990 team is the one that people sort of are our age and, and, and uh, that generation. It is. I like the, I like the way you described it. It's our team. Um, that's that's the most fun uh, I, I can remember. I was in high school at the time, and uh, just uh, what, an, what an incredible season that was. So um, I, I like that we've got sort of documented now um, our team. And it's really right. the first time that's happened. Right, and that was one of the goals that John and I set out with was to kind of get this team out of the shadow of the Big Red Machine. Um, I don't think people ever really appreciated how good this team was or you know, how interesting they were and how, how fun they were. Um, you know, and, and I think part of that is that – and this may be the legacy of Reds teams for, for a few more generations, but anytime you have a good Reds team, you always start calling them the Big Red Machine – well, you know, there's only one big red machine. Uh, there's never going to be another Reds team that's as good as that team, at least probably not in our lifetime. Um, so it, it, it's hard to get your own identity as a Reds team anymore, especially if you're good, because you're already being labeled as this big red machine. So uh, that was kind of our goal is to say, you know, look, this is the team's identity. This is not the big red machine. This is a different team. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was a team with their own distinct identity, and, and while they may not have had the Hall of Famers uh, that the Big Red Machine had, there were no shortage of uh, interesting personalities and great stories out of the 1990 team, and, and you guys have touched on a bunch of those uh, in this book. Um, right. And John or uh, Todd Benzinger gave us a quote that I think is uh, really kind of describes why this book um, needed to happen, and that was, you know, reading a book uh, about the big red machine winning world championships isn't that interesting because they were supposed to win world championships. Reading a book about a team, he said, I, I'd like to read a book about either a team that was supposed to win that didn't and figuring out why or reading about a team that wasn't supposed to win that did. And uh, that's kind of who this team was. You know, they weren't – they were kind of getting to that reputation of, well, this team can't win. Um, and it's kind of – it's interesting to me 
how they went from, you know, this team that couldn't get over the hump, finished second four years in a row, then they had the whole Pete Rose fiasco in 1989, and then how they became, you know, this cohesive unit and really won as a team in the true sense of the word. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It's a uh, it's a much more interesting story, a much more interesting uh, narrative, um, and uh, from beginning to end, just the way all of it uh, coalesced in that uh, fantastic season. You know, um, last year, uh, late uh, last year, last late summer, early fall, had a chance to speak with both uh, Joe Posnanski and uh, Mark Frost, who wrote books that uh, one of them was specifically about the Big Red Machine, the other was about the 1975 World Series Game Six. And, um, you know, I had a blast reading those books, talking to those guys. Um, but, you know, still, I don't, I don't remember those things that, that, that was, they were, these books were about. I don't remember the, uh, you know, the, the, the games and the, the players as well. And this, uh, this team right here, I, you know, I can remember, uh, Luis Quinones and Tim Leona and, and, uh, you know, Scott Scudder just as well as, uh, you know, the Larkins and the Davises. It was just, it was a fun team, just top to bottom. Right, exactly, and uh, and I hope that some of that comes out in the book too, because you know there weren't there weren't many guys on this team that didn't have an interesting story going for them. There weren't you know these uh, these superstars and then the turds as they were on the nineteen seventy five team. You know the it it was everybody contributed at some point. Uh, everybody kind of has their own story for that year, and and you know their their moment in the year and and that was one of the fun things about telling the story was that you didn't find yourself talking about the same guys over and over and over you know it was it gave us a lot of opportunity i mean we featured norm charlton quite a bit and i don't think people you know think back to that team and think wow norm charlton you know he was kind of the heart of that team but in many ways he was and he, he was very exemplary of the team because he went from being very successful in the bullpen to uh, taking on a starting role that he didn't particularly want, um, you know, but he he took on this role and uh, was successful as a starter too. And and you know, not only that, doing what it took for to uh, for the team, but uh, running over Mike Sosha at home plate, and then the the whole incident with the Phillies where he uh, nailed Von Hayes with a pitch, and that later on in the season, the bench clearing brawl sort of coalesced the team maybe a little bit. Uh, he, I think that was you focused on a guy like Norm Charlton. Um, and all these guys you focused on, several of them, but he's one of them that, you're right, most people really may not know as much about Norm Charlton as you should for a team like this. Everybody knows about the Joe Morgans and the uh, uh, Johnny Benches and the Pete Roses. Uh, it, it, I think you guys were, were spot on when uh, when you look at this team. you get a lot of different uh, things that you can uh, talk about that people just may, maybe not have known or have forgotten. Right, and it helped that John was in the clubhouse at the time then. Uh, he wasn't the beat reporter, but he did a lot of coverage of the team. Um, it was funny to go back and look at the clippings uh, from the Inquirer because it, I, I, I joke with John that he must have been Joe Morgan's shadow that year for about two months because Morgan went into the Hall of Fame, and every story written in the Inquirer was by John Arardi about Joe Morgan, and it was you know Dateline. Cincinnati or Dateline Oakland or Dateline Cooperstown, you know, it was, he was all over the country following Joe Morgan all around, but somehow he still was in the dugout or the clubhouse enough with this team to really have his finger on the pulse of what was going on. I mean, he was telling some of these guys, okay, I remember this and this, and they're like, yeah, I had forgotten that, and that's a great point and all this stuff. So, um, you know, I was very lucky to have somebody like John to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how much, you know, just from the, the fan side of it, 
How much fun was it to relive that season? How much did it take you back, uh, you know, to where you were that year? And uh, you know, just how, how much fun was it, just from, from a fan's point of view? Uh, it was incredibly fun. Um, it, it was my memory of that season isn't as good. At, well, I should say it two different ways. My I thought my memory of that season wasn't as good as it ended up being. Um, I don't I don't have a lot of memories of specific games. But then again, on the on the other side, I was surprised to find that a lot of these, a lot of the stories that I remember from that season, um, or that I remember from my childhood, were from that season. You know, the uh, Charlton burling over uh, Mike Sosha, um, the Lou throwing first base, uh, the Glenn Braggs breaking breaking the bat over his shoulder. Uh, you know, a lot of those different uh events that you know i had just assumed were an amalgamation of like things i remembered from my childhood ended up being part of this incredible season and uh you know that as i was like researching the book learning that kind of stuff i mean i i knew some of those details were you know the big ones were there but learning some of the smaller ones that i had forgotten about uh like herm winningham's three triples in a game I had forgotten. I knew. I remembered that event, but I had forgotten that it happened in 1990. Um, and those those kinds of things, when you start, you know, seeing all of those come together in the same season, I was like, wow, I remember a lot more of this season than I thought I did. And that was kind of exciting for me, just um, you know, to to realize that you know what, the season really did have such a big influence on me, um, more than I expected. I expected, you know, going into this that I was going to write a book about a championship team and I was going to talk about, you know, why they were a championship team. I didn't expect that, uh, you know, I had so many memories from this season that I hadn't quite pinpointed as part of this season. Well, that's, uh, you know, just for me reading the book, that's sort of a similar uh, reaction that I had, you know. The uh, the National Championship Series against the Pirates, the uh, World Series against the A's, I actually recorded those games on VHS, and um, they used to, even 10 years later in law school, uh, they used to make fun of me for pulling them out every spring and watching uh, watching all uh, all those games, all 10 games. Um, but, I, I, you know, the what I enjoyed most about the book I found was reliving the regular season moments, that some of which I had remembered, some of like you I didn't realize happened actually in 1990, but that I'd recall, and some that I'd just plain forgotten. Uh, that to me was a joy. I feel like I could tell you every pitch that happened in the playoffs after uh, reliving that so much. But the regular season and, the, and just the way it started out nine and zero and um, sort of a swoon in the the dog days of summer and uh, uh, then uh, you know it just it was it was I don't know what else to say other than it was an interesting story beginning to end and I really enjoyed uh, that's a credit to you guys I really enjoyed reliving that sort of day to day experience uh, that I had way back then when I was following the Reds every day and checking those box scores. Thanks. Uh, you know, I appreciate that sentiment because when we were laying out the outline for the book, um, you know, we told the publisher, we said, we're probably not going to do a whole lot on the playoffs and the World Series. And they're like, really? And we said, well, no, because everybody knows those stories. The interesting stories happen during the season. Um, well, it turns out we ended up, you know, writing a lot more in the playoffs uh, and World Series than we expected. Uh Kind of, you know, felt like it was a good way to summarize some of the themes that we had touched on all year or all throughout the book. Um, but you know, our our initial plan really was that the first half of the book was going to be all the way up to thirty three and twelve. 
because that was like when they were who they were, when they were the this dynamic team that was, you know, that would run over you and, you know, um, uh, you know, it was described as, uh, um, you know, they put your shoulder, their shoulder into you and then they wouldn't let up. Uh, and that, that really comes through in those first 45 games in the year when they were just, you know, they were about out of hell with the way they started the season. Absolutely. And, uh, well, wire to wire. Uh, you know, one thing you focused on at the beginning of the season and before the beginning was, and, and this is what I thought of when you mentioned, you know, sort of not letting up, was Lou Pinella. Um, you know, the hiring of Lou, and, and really you got to give uh, Pinella a lot of credit for the personality of that team and uh, what they were able to accomplish that year. Right. Um, I was a little bit surprised to see how intense Lou was just on a day-to-day basis. You know, you get this image of a fiery manager coming out on the field, throwing the base or arguing or whatever. Um, but even behind the scenes, you know, they they would tell us stories of him coming in and, you know, after just a simple loss, I think it's in the book that Billy Hatcher talks about, you know, they just won a, a few games in a row and then uh, lost one. And Lou comes in and tosses over the the buffet table and is angry and yelling because they lost one game. And he had that intensity all year. Stan Williams, who was the pitching coach at the time, uh, I had a quote from him uh, that I that I picked out of, uh, I don't know, the Dayton Daily News or something. The, he talked about how or they were roommates that year, and he talked about how Lou <laughs> – excuse me, Lou – lived this team for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop. And, you know, Lou even said, this is my last uh, managerial stop. I'm not, I'm not doing this anywhere else. Uh, you know, this is a 1990. He's saying this. I'm not, he's like, but I'm saying, he said, I'm not doing this anywhere else. This will kill me if I keep this up. I just, I, I take it home too much. And, uh, you know, now here we are 20 years later, he's still saying the same thing, you know, right. at what his fourth different, managerial spot so yeah exactly um, but he was he was as fiery uh, you, you discovered he was as fiery as we all remembered him being i guess exactly and uh you know he had a lot of intensity and there's a there's a couple page breakout in there that you know it it kind of explains that it it spread to the team you know they they were ejected what 14 times that year as a team uh, they had quite a reputation as being whiners to the umpires because they argued everything with the umpires um you know they led the league and hit by pitches that year because the other teams hated them and it 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 all kind of stemmed from this attitude that lou brought to the team um they were a young team so they were very prone to be influenced by their manager and i think it was one thing that pete rose didn't bring that um you know we got a lot of impression that you know the guy the guys liked pete but he um he was a little distracted at times and his head wasn't in the game as much as, you know, as you imagine Pete Rose being Pete Rose, the player, Pete Rose, the manager was a little separated. I think there was some frustration that he couldn't be out, out there, um, you know, playing and, you know, spreading his intensity that way. And so he kind of, uh, his mind wandered elsewhere. Uh, Lou brought in this focus and this accountability to his players they didn't want to let him down, and so they played with kind of that the, that same fire that he brought to the team. Well, it's uh, it, it was interesting to see how the team began to be sort of shaped uh, differently after uh, 
you know, after Rose and uh, with Penella coming on, I think you guys have discussed that quite a, quite well in the book. Something else that I had never really thought about much with respect to that 90 team, and we all know the stories of the Big Red Machine and, uh, you know, how they traded for Joe Morgan and the George Foster acquisition and, and, and all that, but never really thought too much about how um, the, this 1990 team was sort of cobbled together and the, the final pieces were put together. I guess Bob Quinn was the general manager at the time and made some moves that I think you guys uh, talked about quite a bit in the book that uh, in terms of how they affected the Reds, uh, you know, trading uh, John Franco to get Randy Myers out in the bullpen, uh, the midseason uh, deal that it, where they traded the true creature, Ron Robinson, for uh, Glenn Braggs uh, for the Brewers. And then, of course, you guys say in the book, Reds management kind of considered Billy Hatcher to be sort of the missing piece of the puzzle when they acquired him uh, from Pittsburgh. Um was that something you realized going into it? How much uh, uh, Billy Hatcher was integral, I guess, to that team? Or that yeah, I think um, I think everybody has this memory of Billy Hatcher being so good in the World Series that they kind of assumed that he was good the whole year. Um, and I like to joke with John. I say that you know if we had blogs back then, we would have been bitching and moaning about Billy Hatcher still playing left field with Glenn Bragg sitting on the bench. We- um, we really, really would have. There's no question about it. It'd be bad. Yeah, I mean, because Glenn Braggs tore the cover off the ball that year. Now, now Hatcher hit hit really well the first couple months of the season, but Braggs wasn't brought in to be this big bat to put in left field. Braggs was actually brought in to be a, pl- a platoon partner with Paul O'Neill because Lou Pinella was convinced that Paul O'Neill couldn't hit lefties and wasn't ever going to figure it out. Um, so, and Braggs destroyed lefties that year. And it, it was a move that obviously worked out very well. Uh, but, uh, you know, Billy Hatcher still, I think the thing that he brought, um, he, he didn't bring necessarily so much sabermetrically, although, you know, he was a good defender. And, uh, so he brought some good defense, but he brought, uh, some personality to the team, uh, a lighthearted personality, somebody who laughed a lot. But also um, somebody who had experience, uh, playoff experience. He had played with the Astros uh, in the '86 playoffs, and that's kind of what they, you know, management was looking for. I think some of the players were a little disappointed that they hadn't gotten a big bat to cover in left field. Um, but ultimately, I think Hatcher kind of earned his way onto the team, uh, you know, by starting off hot. He hit well. Larkin hit well. Mariano Duncan hit incredibly well to start the season, and uh, and Sabo hit really well to start the season. And I think um, those guys at the top of the order really set the stage for uh, their offensive performance during the first two months of the season. So I think it, it worked out well getting somebody like Hatcher. Um, I I just don't think that you know with the way that we overanalyze every move that the Reds do, we would not have been happy with the way that it, you know with that kind of a move that the Reds had made to play left field. Yeah. Yeah. No question. You know, I in my memory, I, I really liked Billy Hatcher back then. Just uh, everything about him, he seemed like he was having fun out there, and he was you know uh, he did play good defense. He ran the bases fairly well. But you know, I've looked back. Uh, and the, over the last few years, uh, as I've started to learn more about uh, sort of the, you know, uh, statistical analysis and, you know, really other than sort of the traditional weak sisters of that starting lineup, uh, Joe Oliver and then Todd Benzinger most of the time, uh, Hatcher really was offensively uh, about as weak as they uh, uh, as the Reds had that year. But you're right, there was, I, don't, I don't know what it is about him, and, and I hesitate to say intangibles because that's not what I'm trying to say, but uh, – 
he did bring something to the table, and certainly the Reds evidently uh, felt like he was uh, the missing piece, as you guys talk about. I thought that was an interesting perspective. Right. Well, we would have. I mean, we would have been furious with the 381 slugging percentage in left field, uh, especially because uh, Todd Benzinger was slugging 340 at first base. Can you so? Can you imagine a 291 on base percentage for Benzinger? Uh, can you imagine we would just be? Uh, oh. With Hal Morris sitting on the bench, you, know, you got it. You have a, a rookie who won a batting title in the minor league sitting the bench, so you can have this guy who's you know has a 340 slugging percentage, a 291 on base percentage to play first base. Oh, we would have been furious. But what's what's great about those memories is, uh, you know, even now I know Todd Benzinger really couldn't hit uh, at all, but. I remember him catching that ball behind first base for the last out of that World Series, and so Todd Benzinger will always have a soft spot in my heart, and that's the way a lot of Reds fans feel. And Todd Benzinger, I think he's going to end up being a great coach. Uh, He was very articulate, very well-spoken, very intelligent. I don't know that he necessarily had good perspective on his playing career, but he seemed to have a pretty good perspective on other people's playing career. So he, you know, I, I think he thinks he was a little better than he probably he probably was during his career, but um, otherwise, you know, I, I got that perspective from him that, you know, he kind of understood other players' roles really well. So I think he's going to end up being a good coach. Hopefully he'll keep moving up through the red system. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that, uh, not to, not really shifting too much because we've talked about some of the sabermetrics a little bit, but one thing that I really found interesting about the book, and you don't see this in very many books, and I imagine this is your influence, uh because I have uh, read everything that you've done uh, in the Inquirer with uh, with John, but uh, wins above replacement, uh, batting average on balls in play, a lot of sort of the, the newfangled stats uh, show up in this book. Was that, uh, I don't know, how, how well received was that, and, and how open is jo- was John to that? Uh, John, the, John wanted it. I think that's why John wanted to do the book with me, because he wanted to do something that was, uh, was a hybrid. Uh, um it, it's kind of weird. When we initially set out to the, do this book, it was more going to be a coffee table book. But the more we researched into it, we're like, wow, there's really a good story to tell here. This needs to be more of a, a detailed story. Uh, but we had always planned, uh, even way back at the beginning, we'd always planned to do some these a little analysis breakouts where you know we we look at how this team was successful, why they were who they were beyond just um, you know the regular platitudes that you throw at a team. Oh, they were a great team, or they were a great um, you know they they had great at situational hitting. We wanted to break it down a little further. Uh, you know the I, I hope that that people still you know we tried to do it in a fashion that it wasn't just um, it, where it wasn't over people's heads. You know we wanted to make sure that it was. Joe Average, who doesn't read read about baseball. I mean, a lot of these concepts are very familiar to people who read a lot of blogs and such. But uh, you know, Joe Average, who doesn't read on the blogs, may not be familiar with a lot of these concepts. So, um, you know, we wanted to try to do it in that in a fashion where it was still made sense. Um, and I, I hope it comes through that way. Uh, but John was in full support of it, and he he actually really wanted to go with that that aspect. Um, and have that in the book. He thought that that would add something that you know you don't normally get um, out of a baseball book like this. Oh, I thought it was a, a, a wise decision, and I think that it was. 
it's more subtle than uh, than I maybe implied a moment ago. Uh, you're not beating people over the head with this stuff. You're introducing some of these concepts and talking about how you can evaluate this team using, for example, wins above replacement. Um, but it's a stat, it's a book that uh, even uh, you know Joe Fan, who doesn't care anything more about anything than batting average, uh, home runs, and RBIs, is going to be able to dig right into and absolutely love. It's it's I don't want to give the impression that it's. Uh, you know, sort of a, a sabermetric type book. It's not, but, the, the, you know, there's sort of subtly some, some of those concepts weaved in there, and I, I appreciate you guys doing that because it gives us a different perspective than we're used to about uh, about this team. Right, and, you know, it, it is definitely, in fact, I'm sure there's plenty of flaws in there that, that say, you know, true saberists are going to be like, oh, this is terrible, I can't believe we're talking about this. But, you know, we didn't want to do a full-on sabermetric, you know, baseball prospectus type book. We wanted to do something that was a little more of a hybrid. And more accessible, and I think that was a good idea. Um, Whether you look at it uh, through the sabermetric stats or the traditional stats, the Nasty Boys were good, weren't they? Oh, they were awesome. Um, Yeah, there's a, uh, what we call a fast fact in there that says something like, uh, they were the first... Uh, bullpen to have three guys pitch at least 50 innings and strike out 10 batters per nine innings. Uh, and I think that says it all right there. They they came into the game and, you know, it was f- 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 they were striking them out and, you know, just like that. Um, and, you know, they, they were in many ways the identity of this team. You know, they, they were that attitude, um, you know, personified. Some of the the uh, some what's somewhat funny about it is multiple people told us um, Myers was just kind of kooky that he wasn't really this you know it was kind of this persona that he had put out there that Dibble was uh, kind of a fake you know that he wasn't as tough as he made himself out to be and that Charlton was the one that you did not want to mess with. Um, you know, they say that, you know, you, you want to stay away from the quiet ones because if they're not talking, that means that they're, they're stewing. Um, and Charlton was definitely the quiet one of the three, uh, also the most intelligent one of the three, but you know, that's not necessarily saying a lot. <laughs> not, not a high bar to, to cross, but, uh, yeah, of course, Charlton had a triple major, I believe from Rice University, if I remember, uh, correctly, but I was happy that in looking back at the nasty boys, um, that, the memory of how dominant they were was not diminished in the least by uh, any analysis of them in retrospect. It just it, you got the game to the sixth inning and it was over, and, and you don't see that uh, very often. No, not, especially not anymore. Not with um, you know, the, in, in many ways, going away from that nasty boy model uh, is probably diminished bullpens strictly because you know these guys used to pitch. They they would regularly pitch two innings. Each, I mean, not in the same game, obviously, but any one of them would pitch two innings when they came in. Nowadays, you've got such specialization, um, thanks Tony Larusa, uh, that I think you end up seeing more lower quality pitchers come into games um, because you know you're using more pitchers. Back then, you know, Lou Pinella, he had his three guys and he rode those horses hard. Now Tim Leana also pitched quite a few innings. Um, he wasn't as effective but he was they still considered him one of the nasty boys in fact he wasn't put on the playoff roster and you know all three of those guys were writing Leona's number on a, their sock or on their hat or whatever uh to pay tribute to him so even though those three guys kind of got all the press they still you know considered Leona to be one of them and actually they they considered the whole bullpen to be part of the nasty boys 
um, even though they weren't all getting the press that those three guys were. All right. Um, in the formation of the Nasty Boys, uh, you know, well, putting Leona on the, grabbing him in the Rule 5 uh, draft was one interesting, uh, I guess, transaction. But when you look at the uh, Randy Myers, the Reds took a little bit of heat, uh, didn't they, For because uh, they traded John Franco for him, and John Franco had been outstanding for uh, several years. Yeah, John Franco, I think, had run won the Roll Aids Relief Man Award in 1989 or 88. Um, it's probably 88. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of his teammates at the time of the deal were very upset that he had been dealt. They all felt like it was strictly a financial deal. Um, Myers was, I think, going to make about a third of what uh, Franco made. And, you know, given that both of them were left-handers and that Franco had much more success, you know, a lot of them just said, you know, look, this is just a financial deal. And um, I think really the uh, there were two reasons why Bob Quinn and Lou Pinello wanted to make the deal. Number one was because Randy Myers um, – or they wanted somebody who was going to share the closer role with Rob Dibble. And they knew Franco would never you know, agree to anything like that. Um, and then the number two – and they've, or they felt like Myers would do it. And number two was because they wanted to make a statement to the team – you know, look, this is our team. This isn't Pete's team anymore. This is our team. Any one of you can be sent out of here if we don't feel like you fit the mold that we are trying to build. And I think they kind of sent that message home by, you know, picking Franco. Uh, Franco was pretty close to Pete, had a lot of uh, ties, um, you know, with Pete over the years. And so I think that, uh, you know, that kind of just sent that message to them that, look, you know, this guy was in Scott or in, entrenched here. And you know we're gonna get we're gonna get rid of them. We're gonna change the attitude a little bit, and this is the direction we're going. You know, get used to it, basically. Well, it worked out certainly, and uh, created one of the more memorable, uh, maybe the most memorable bullpen uh, in baseball history. Just, uh, uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed reminiscing about uh, about the Nasty Boys. A uh, lot of great. Uh, it comes to mind that there are a lot of great photos in this book. A ton of uh, pictures. The Reds, I guess, were pretty cooperative with you guys because uh, is that right yeah well um we got a bunch of pictures from the inquirer uh so that was helpful and and some of the you know the best pictures in here are inquirer pictures um and then we did also get the reds opened up their coffers for us and let us go through and and pick out you know basically any kind of picture we wanted to take for the book they let us you know sift through everything um so yeah we were very lucky with that it, uh, it, you know, there are there are some absolutely amazing shots in here. Uh, a couple of them are AP photos that we had to, you know, fork out some cash for. But, um, you know, the picture of Norm Charlton plowing through Mike Sosha is an AP photo. But, you know, that that's one of those images that you absolutely have to have in in this book. So, um, but yeah, there's there's some incredible pictures in here that we that we love. Um, I'm very happy with the way that, actually with the way the book looks in general, uh, with the pictures and the layout and the coloring and all that. I'm very happy with it. Yeah, you can tell that it would have made a fantastic uh, coffee table book because uh, fantastic, uh, colorful photos, just uh, and and great subjects, I guess, uh, photos as well. Um, one sort of member of the uh, the family back then that really is not mentioned for various reasons as often anymore. Is Marge Schott. 
Um, and you guys talk a lot about Marge in the book. Uh, did you learn anything new about Marge? Did you know, or, or what was? How did you guys choose to address uh, Marge as part of this team? Um, you know, we we kind of decided that we were going to just address Marge um, when it was relevant to the story that we were telling at the time. I think, <coughs> excuse me. I think um, people know Marge's story pretty well. There's not a lot about Marge that we would have been able to say that people would have been like, wow, I didn't know that. The one thing that surprised me, though, um, was to find out that the players actually liked Marge. Uh, That was in part because Marge paid her players well. She didn't necessarily pay the rest of her staff well, and they, they didn't really like the fact that she was cutting scouting or you know doing whatever she was doing they all thought she was a little eccentric a little crazy but they they liked her um as a person they you know they they accepted who she was uh as the owner uh even eric davis who is forever tied to marge for two different incidents one was when he lacerated his kidney and there was um some uh debate over who should pay to have him fly back to Cincinnati, uh, which Davis paid for his flight originally, but Marge eventually reimbursed him. Um, and then the other thing is when uh, you know Marge used derogatory terms to describe Davis, uh, which we don't necessarily need to get into here. But um, those two events kind of you know tied Davis to Marge, you know probably forever. You know when you when you talk about Marge shot in the Cincinnati Reds, um, you know. There's always going to be that footnote of the things she did to Eric Davis, and I found a uh, an obituary written by Davis for well, it's not really an obituary, but it's a a note written by Davis um, after Marge died that he uh, sent to Sports Illustrated that they published, and he says in there he said you know Marge was my friend, I considered Marge a friend, all of those things, all of those memories that people have of her. Those are not the memories I have of her, and that really said something to me about, one, the relationship that Marge had with her players, and two, about what kind of a man Eric Davis is. Um, you know, He really was uh, – if there was one person in this book that I felt like I learned the most about, it was Eric Davis, and that he um, wasn't – You know, he's not this glorified superstar – that sometimes he was made out to be in the media. He he is an honest to goodness gentleman and like a true person. Um, and I hope that John and I were able to you know demonstrate that for Davis because he deserves it. Well, you stole something I was getting ready to say here, so I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna plow ahead and say it anyway. But yeah, what what that said to me, and, and I was gonna reference exactly what he said, Eric Davis said after uh, Marge passed away. It did say something about Marge and what the players thought about her, but it absolutely said more about uh, the class. Of a guy like Eric Davis, and you know, there's a point in the book where you guys mention, uh, you know, I guess it might have been actually uh, from uh, last year's uh, fantasy camp, and, and Eric Davis walks in, and the guys they all love him, you know, but there's a, sort of a reverence for him as well, uh, you know, he was he was sort of the star, but but everyone loved him, uh, you know, I guess it's sort of a, a strange dichotomy, but I thought that was an interesting uh, look into who Eric Davis is and what uh, the people who know him best thought about him. Yeah, you know, it, it was hard for me. I'm not even sure I did it justice in the book because there there was just this error about him. Um, when he first came to fantasy camp this year, 
he he showed up on you know he showed up on like Monday night or Tuesday night after we had been there for a couple of days and we're having kangaroo court and nobody has seen Eric yet I, although I'm sure some of the other guys other players had seen him but none of like the campers had seen Eric yet and you know he shows up and you know there's all these former major league players there and Davis shows up and he suddenly just becomes the center of attention like you know he's the man um, and and it just it. I was so like surprised to see that these major leaguers who had been around some of the greatest players of all time uh, just had this, you know, general respect for Davis. And, and you could, I think it was just because you know they could respect that one, you know, he had such tremendous talent, and two, he was um, he had such class, you know, that they that he, I don't think that he ever treated players as beneath him. I kind of got that impression from them. I mean, what, what really wowed me was, you know, Joe Oliver and Eric Davis acted like they were best buddies. And, you know, Joe Oliver, you know, he had a pretty good career, but it's not like he was ever a superstar. He, you know, I don't think he ever went to an all-star game or anything like that. Um, you know, and Eric Davis was this superstar, but he and Oliver were, just, you know, chummy chummy out on, you know, when we were out on the patio drinking beers and he's out there just, you know, they're, Treating each other like they've been best friends for you know three decades or whatever. So seeing that um, that glimpse of Davis, uh, I'm not sure I could ever do it justice. Uh, even explaining it to you right now, I don't feel like I have it. There's just um, it's a weird, impressive uh, air that he has about himself. Um, and this is coming from somebody who you know I idolized Davis growing up. So. Uh, it was weird for me to see that um, that side of him, uh, you know, really made him much more human too. Well, anything that sort of uh, reminds people what a great uh, player and what a great uh, guy Eric Davis was and is, I'm all for that. I'm glad you guys uh, focused on that a little bit because you know I revered him as well uh, growing up, but now he did take some heat, some undeserved heat at times uh, during his career, and so I, I like the fact that uh, you guys are. We're able to sort of reflect a little bit on uh, Eric Davis and some of the the things that people should remember about Eric Davis. Yeah, and I think he his image in Cincinnati changed a lot uh, when he came back in 1996. Absolutely. You know, and I think that did a whole lot for who he was, how he, or what his legacy in Cincinnati was. One thing I will say that I'm not real sure if I said this in the book or not, um, but he. Somebody asked him at fantasy camp, you know, he said, Dave, Eric, how, how long did it take for you to get back to normal after you hurt your kidney? And he said two and a half years. Um, and I don't think people understood that. I think when he left for Los Angeles, when he was traded, uh, you know, people were saying good riddance, you know, you're the shell of who you used to be. And, you know, to hear him say, you know, it took me two and a half years before I was back to normal health wise. Um, I think, you know, that's something you never heard him complain about in in the papers. Um, you know, John likes to call Davis the the best gamer he's ever seen, uh, and you know that's saying something. And I don't think that most Reds fans have that perspective of Davis. Yeah, and what irritates me most, I guess, about the bad rap he took was that, you know, that uh, that injury, the lacerated kidney. You know, he in, in two and a half years, whatever. Uh, that was in the line of duty. He was going all out to help the Cincinnati Reds win a world championship. Um, 
And you know, it started with Marge not uh, paying for that flight and all that dust up, and then the bad rap he got after that. I'm glad that uh, we can try to rehabilitate his image a little bit. Right. Although n- n- at this point, maybe it doesn't need to be rehabilitated any because you're right, uh, Penum has changed. But um, but this guy was go- went all out uh, for our team, and I think he needs to be recognized for that. Oh, and he spent a week in the ICU. That just blows my mind. From a baseball injury, he was in the ICU for a week. It's crazy. It, I know, and it, it always made me at the time uh, sad, frankly, that here the Reds were having their uh, you know celebrations and everything, and and and. Davis couldn't be a part of it because he was out there uh, in the hospital and he was uh, still suffering. And uh, for someone that was sort of the center of that team, uh, maybe not the leader. We'll talk about uh, Barry Larkin in a minute. Maybe not the only leader, I guess. But, uh, uh, you know, he was sort of the center and the, and the rock and, and the guy who sort of, when he hit that home run off Stewart in game one, everybody credits that with being sort of the moment. And, uh, you know, uh, that's – listen, I'm a fully paid member of the Eric Davis fan. <laughs> say, say that. Yeah. Um, what about Larkin? Did you learn anything about Larkin? Uh, that was he was a young guy at the time, and we know what he did after that. But he was he was pretty much the man at that time with that team, even despite his uh, youth, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he. You know, I wouldn't say that this is like Larkin's team, but it was definitely his coming of age year. He he became Barry Larkin, I think, in 1990. Uh, you know, the guy that could do it all. He could bat first. He could bat second. He could bat third. Um, and, uh, it, it really, you know, they, there's some good quotes of like, uh, you know, Larkin is, uh, playing shortstop and during the playoffs and all Eric Davis is thinking is, you know, hit it to his right, hit it to his left, uh, hit it, you know, so that he has to run backwards about Larkin because he wanted all of the nation to see how great of a player Larkin was he appreciated who Larkin was, um, and and he felt like the playoffs were going to be a great time for everybody else to see that, no, it's not Ozzie Smith who's the greatest player uh, or the, the best shortstop in the league. It's Barry Larkin. And and uh, I think 1990 kind of cemented him in that um, – or, or maybe not cemented him, but put him down that road of becoming – the best shortstop in the National League for the 90s. Uh, you know, it was he played 156 games that year. A graph that, that we wanted to put into the book but wasn't able to demonstrated that when Larkin played uh, at least 80% of the, of the games, the Reds, the, his team's games during the, his career, they were a winning team. I think they had two losing seasons in the years where he played at least 80 games uh, or 80% of the games. And the years where he played less than 80% of the games, uh, he had uh, – they had two winning years. Did I say two losing years before? Two winning – I don't uh, – my my brain's all scattered <laughs> right now. Um, but anyway, basically what it means is when Larkin was healthy and playing, the Reds were a winning team during his career. Uh, and that really you know, started coming through in 1990 when he was doing it all. He started out – you know, hit – 600 the first week and a half of the season which you know that short it's a short small sample size but still nobody does that for a week sure um you know so he uh i just had an incredible year that year um and wasn't his best year you know he was much better in 95 and 96 but uh it was still kind of his coming out party with the nation to say you know look this guy's awesome uh you know start paying attention yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and this story always amuses me, and 
no one else, uh, I'm sure, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I remember that year, you know, being in school and, and being outside of the school before uh, the school day started, and some guy comes up to me, Larkin's hitting 600 or whatever, and he says to me, come on, you know, his average has to come down. I'm thinking, uh, well, yeah, probably, but, you know, this guy's this guy's a good player. But uh, I don't know why I still remember that for back there, but it was sort of his coming-of-age year, and it was the year that uh, Larkin has ended up being my – he's my favorite Red uh, of all time. And, uh, and it was a year where I think that's a – a good way to put it, America was sort of introduced to him uh, and to what we got had been able to witness uh, a couple years before that, but for the rest of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, a, what a great player and what a, uh, you know, that that team allowed him to showcase some of his talents, uh, you know, uh, fairly well because he was, they needed him to be that uh, uh, sort of a leadoff guy when he was batting leadoff and, uh, you know, they needed his defense and uh, through the anchor of the field. And, um, so, again, anything that... Uh, Paints Larkin in a good light. I'm all for that. Um, <laughs> well, it's hard when you're talking about his, you know, him as a player. It's hard not to paint him in a good light. He was an incredible player. Absolutely, absolutely. Is there anything? And you mentioned a couple things maybe already. Is there anything else you can think of that? And there may not be. I may be putting you on the spot here that you didn't know, or that surprised you, or the most interesting thing, interesting thing you uncovered as you researched this book. Anything else before we uh, before we get out of here that you uh, would like to mention about that? Um. Uh, you know, there's there's so many there's so many good things. Uh, one thing that I hadn't really thought about um, was, you know, the Reds were a running team and they they used their speed a lot. But on the flip side, they shut down other teams uh, running. Joe Oliver was incredible that year, uh, threw out like you know forty forty three percent or something like that. Uh, of base stealers, but to start the year, he threw out like 13 of the first 20 guys that tried to steal against them. And these weren't, you know, Joe average stealers. These were like Vince Coleman and Willie McGee and Roberto Alomar, those guys. Um, he, you know, for a rookie to come in and kind of establish this presence of, you know, you will not run on me, uh, uh, really impressed me about Oliver, um, that I, I hadn't expected. I, I always kind of just imagine Oliver being this, average catcher um right. but you know that his he wasn't that great of a hitter his rookie year but that wasn't his job he wasn't there to be a hitter he was there to you know control the pitching staff and shut down the running game of the other team and he did just that um so you know he was he was one of those guys that i i hadn't expected to see much out of him um so that kind of impressed me i didn't you know i didn't really uh see that coming yeah, I didn't. I didn't remember that either from back then. Uh, you know, uh, always thought favorably towards uh, Oliver, even though he never really could hit that, that much. But I didn't realize he really controlled the game as well. That's a good point. Um, the book is the Wire to Wire Reds, Sweet Lou, Nasty Boys, and the Wild and the Wild Run to a World Championship, written by uh, Joel Luckup, who's here with us, along with John Arardi. You guys are signing some books here soon, I believe. Is that right? Uh, yes, we are. We will be at the Reds Hall of Fame on uh, Saturday, June 12th from 4.30 to 6.30, just before the Royals game. Um, so if you're going down to get your Scott Rowland bobblehead or if you're going to the Reds tailgate, come on over to the Hall of Fame, and uh, we'll sign a book for you. Uh, we'll also will be up in Dayton at Books & Company next Wednesday, uh, June 19th at 7 p.m., and we'll be at uh, uh, Wednesday's not the 19th. Wednesday is the 16th. We'll be at Walden Books on Saturday, the 19th. Walden Books on Glenway Avenue, 
uh, on Saturday the 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. All of these are uh, on the sidebar at redroadporter.com or um, at our website, wiretowirereds.com. Also has our schedule there. And if you uh, aren't able to make it out but would still like to get an autographed book from us, you can buy one at wiretowirereds.com. And uh, John and I will be happy to sign it for you and ship it off to you. Well, I can't uh, urge everyone strongly enough uh, to go out and uh, and pick up this book. And, and if you can get it signed, that's a bonus. But uh, I guarantee you're going to enjoy uh, reminiscing the 1990 Reds uh, with this book, The Wire to Wire Reds. Just great job on the book. Uh, and congratulations on it. And I wish you nothing but the best uh, for the book's success. Thank you very much. And I forgot to mention, it makes a fantastic Father's Day's gift. So, you know, don't skimp out on Dad this year. Buy him the book. You know, I, I had to, I had to have it as soon as I could get it. I went and ordered. I should have thought of that, and I could have that could have been my Father's Day gift. <laughs> but uh, but definitely, uh, great job, Joel. Really appreciate you joining us here today. It was a good conversation. Enjoyed getting to reminisce a little bit about that. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me on, Chad. And you know, we're talking about this book, but uh, and I've been wanting to get Joel on the podcast for a while, and, and I've sort of slipped up, uh, procrastinated about that. But you know, he's a he's a part of the fine uh, Red Reporter community uh, over there redreporter.com and and i hope we can have you back on uh, sometime soon just to talk about the the current reds and things that are going on because uh this continues to be an interesting organization uh, no matter uh, which how they're doing on the field uh yes that's true they're i think they're moving in the right direction uh not doing so hot tonight but you know uh they'll go get them tomorrow hopefully yeah yeah i agree they're they're heading in the right direction and uh so We'll, we'll have you back on, I hope, sometime real soon to, to talk about that a little bit. Um, well, again, Joel, appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Chad. All right. Uh, that, that was uh, Joel Luckup, uh, one of the authors, along with John Arardi of the Wire to Wire Reds. This has been the Red Leg Nation radio podcast. Thanks for each of you for uh, joining us tonight, for downloading us. You have a lot of things you could be listening to, and I appreciate you listening to us. Uh, check out the RN Radio tab at the top of redlegnation.com. have all the uh, previous episodes. Uh, also have a, a link where you can subscribe via iTunes uh, to the podcast. Once again, for Joel Luckup, this is Chad Dotson saying so long.